Hi everybody, my name is Michael Domingue and welcome to Strange Tales of Myth and Magic. In this podcast, we're going to explore mythology and magic and fairy tales and wives tales and maybe some snakes tales. We'll take a peek at some of the strange legends and stories throughout history and how they affected culture and how they affected me as an artist. So sit back and let me tell you a story. This week's episode, The Weeping Woman, La Llorona. Of all the folktales that I'm familiar with, I think perhaps the one that gets me the most, the one that I find most heartbreaking, is La Llorona. And this is a, a tale that takes place uh, mostly in Mexico. It, it um, usually hear it popping up in southern parts of the United States, where there's a lot of Latino populations, and, and even further south than Mexico, down to South America, you might hear tales of of the weeping woman, as it's translated. Um, and it's a story about a woman who wanders the waterways, the rivers, the creeks, even the lakes, um, looking for children. Yes, it's another child-catching sort of beastie. Um, but this one is a little different than, let's say, Baba Yaga or the witch in Hansel and Gretel. This one uh, you might find yourself having a little bit more sympathy for. So the best way to explain who La Llorona is, is to basically tell you her story. And there's some iterations of it, but the basic core of it is is pretty consistent. Um, so what we need to do is go back to colonial Mexico. So post-conquest, after while the Spaniards are, are in control of Mexico. So our story starts with a count, a Spanish count who's wandering on his mighty steed across rural Mexico, and we'll call him Francisco, and and Francisco riding from town to town, and, and he's the stereotypical Spanish count. You know, he's got the roughly collars, and he has the twirly mustache and the pointy beard. And one day, he stops in a small village, and there... Across the park, he sees a visage. He sees this beautiful young woman in a white gown. And he thinks to himself, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. This has to be the most beautiful woman in the world. The woman he sees is a young peasant named Maria. And and she is, in fact, perhaps the most beautiful girl in the village and perhaps the most beautiful girl in all of Mexico. Now, from afar, Francisco decides that this is the woman that he must marry. He's that much in love with this. From afar, love at first sight. Well, he proceeds to woo her. There's a romance. And and, and at first, Maria is hesitant because she's had many suitors, and none of which really fit the bill for her. But, but she actually genuinely falls in love with Francisco. So they get married. They, you know, do the... The household thing. She moves into a big hacienda with with Francisco, and and they have two boys, and you know their marriage moves on as marriage does, and, and then Francisco starts to drift away. He starts to spend less time doting on Maria. In fact, he starts spending less time at the hacienda altogether. But but day by day by day. He seems to be floating away. He seems to spend more time at the cantinas. He seems to be spending more time hunting. And it gets to the point of where he barely even looks at Maria. Now, the gossip around town is that Francisco's got another gal. 
And um, the gal, it is said, is a beautiful young woman from Spain. Now, Maria doesn't want to believe any of this, but but the evidence seems to be mounting. I mean, he barely spends a night at home anymore. And, and then it gets to the point where he's gone for weeks on end. And then eventually the day comes when he decides he's moving out. Now, Francisco would always make sure he had time for the boys because he loved his boys dearly. And and Maria thought that they had a great relationship. They, they, you know, it was a beautiful family. Everybody loved everybody. But that seems to have changed. So Francisco would come by periodically and he would spend a little bit of time with the boys and then he'd go off. Then one day he comes to visit, but this time he shows up in a carriage and in the carriage with him is a young Spanish woman. Maria sees her and she goes pale. She's enraged. And the best way to describe what happens to her is that it's as if a dark haze envelops her, a haze that that is filled with so much hatred and desire for revenge that she momentarily loses herself. All she can think of are ways to hurt Francisco. That's the only thing that matters to her at this particular moment. How can she take from him what is most dear? Well, what is most dear to Francisco are his sons. She grabs the two boys, she takes them down to the river, holds them beneath the water until they are lifeless, and then they drift away downstream. It's at this moment that clarity starts to return and that dark haze starts to recede. Maria suddenly is painfully aware of the horrible, inexcusable thing that she has done. She cries out, Ay, mi hijos, oh, my children. She frantically splashes about the water, searching for her lost boys, hoping, hoping that they are still alive. Hours go by. Days go by. Her white dress becomes but tatters. Weeks go by, and her body grows thin and skeletal-like from malnutrition. And then one day, she herself drifts beneath the surface of the water. Now it's said that now she is a spirit that wanders the waterway, looking for her boys. And, and she cannot rest until she finds the souls of her boys. There is no way to enter heaven unless she finds her boys. So this is why parents warn about La Llorona. Because what might happen is if your children are playing near the waterway, the weeping woman might think they're her children and she'll want to bring them close for a motherly embrace. But of course, that would be quite deadly. Now, I think the difference between La Llorona and, say, something like the witch in Hansel and Gretel is, is quite simply that La Llorona doesn't necessarily have ill intent towards the children that she calls to her and wants to, to hold with her. It's really a misunderstanding. She thinks they're her sons. And what she thinks will bring her peace ultimately brings everyone more hardship. Well... That's not a jolly little tale. So I, I should mention, you know, a telltale sign that La Llorona is nearby is her perpetual wailing, her crying. 
So to some of you, this may seem a little familiar to the Irish legend of the Banshee. Now, the Banshee is different, though. The Banshee, um, often a woman and, you know, dressed in white, often with red hair because it's coming from Ireland. Um, but she'll be heard screeching or crying, um, not so much a lament as, as a horrifying shriek. So the cry of the Banshee. Um, and this is a little bit different, or it's actually a lot different than La Llorona, because what the Banshee is doing is it's foretelling doom, death, destruction. Now, compared to La Llorona, La Llorona is the bringer of such things. So if anything, the Banshee would be calling out to warn you about the coming of La Llorona, which would make for a very loud evening, one warning of death and destruction and one crying and creating death and destruction. Fortunately, um, as far as I know, they, the two, the Banshee and La Llorona, don't coexist in the same universe. So I think we're safe, um, partially safe anyway. Now, there's a, a slight variation to La Llorona tale, and it it also takes place in, in post-conquest Mexico. Um, but but the variation is actually with Malinche. Now, Malinche, those historians out there might know Malinche was the um, interpreter slash mistress of Cortez. And, and historically, she actually helped him um, in, in many ways conquer the indigenous people. So um, she's often seen as a traitor to the indigenous Mexicans. So the the Malinche story that I'm most familiar with, where she's La Llorona, is one in which, you know, she has a child with Cortez. Cortez wants to take his son back to Spain, and in particular because he wants to marry a Spanish woman um, and leave Malinche behind. She goes mad. She, she kills her son and kills herself and, of course, becomes the spirit La Llorona. So it's not really that surprising that the the historic figure Malinche actually becomes the embodiment of La Llorona, because to many, she's seen as betraying her people, her family, and not unlike um, La Llorona, who ultimately betrays her family and becomes a demon. Now, over the years, um, the view of Malinche has sort of softened a bit. She's not quite the, the La Llorona monster that she once was. And part of that is because she's uh, can be seen as a victim. And I think one could argue that, that La Llorona is sort of a, to some degree, a victim of, of bad circumstances that led her to that. So in Mexico, there's a great little ditty, if you happen to be hanging out in cantinas or cafes, that, that you might hear, and it's called La Llorona. Um, and it's a very sad, mournful song. Mariachi bands will, will play it, guitar players. And, and it, it, for me, I actually, every time I go to Mexico, I, I at least hire one mariachi band to play La Llorona for me. Um, and it's, it's a very sorrowful song. Now, the the song is about the weeping woman, but it's not necessarily um, about the woman who drowns her children. It is actually a song um, about a, a woman who won't stop crying. The man wants to leave her, but he doesn't want to leave her because she's crying and he doesn't want to make her feel bad. And so that's what actually the song is about. Um, but nonetheless, it's often attributed to the ghostly specter that wanders the waterway. Because after all, it is a, a very haunting, a beautiful yet haunting melody. I actually have a very favorite version of this. Um, check out Leela Downs' version. And you can actually find this um, on the soundtrack to Frida. So check it out. I think you'll like it. 
Now, there might be some of you out there who are um, up on your Greek myths and legends, and um, you might think that this sounds a little bit familiar to the legend of the Lamia. Now, the Lamia um, is a Greek legend um, about a Libyan queen who, of course, gets in trouble because she falls in love with Zeus, which is a common thing. And Hera finds out about it, Zeus's wife. And Hera, of course, being jealous, curses Lamia. She curses Lamia. Lamia gets all the blame. Zeus gets none of the blame. Eh, go figure. So Hera kills all of Lamia's children. But that's not all. This tragedy transforms Lamia into a, a, a water creature that is that is the upper torso of a woman and the lower torso of a serpent. Oh, but wait, there's still more. Um, also, Hera curses her so that she can never shut her eyes, so she'll perpetually be crying. Zeus um, gives sort of a, a minor concession and and uh, says, hey, well, I'll make your troubles a little easier. And he, he gives her the ability to pop out her eyes once in a while. Gee, thanks. So now the Lamia wanders the waterways, snatching up children. So since we're on the topic of mythology, as it turns out, the Aztecs actually had um, a, a myth that somewhat relates to La Llorona. And, and in fact, it could actually be um, the source for the tale of La Llorona. So as the story goes, the goddess of childbirth, Siwakwadl, um, she has a young infant son. And the, the son is actually the storm god. Um, and for one reason or another, she decides she doesn't want him anymore. And so she abandons him at a crossroads. So not unlike the woman Maria in the La Llorona story, I mean, suddenly she's she she gets all of a sudden the realization of what she's just done. She's just abandoned her son. So she rushes back to the crossroads where she left him and he's gone. He's totally gone. And all that is left is a dagger, a stone dagger that that is typically used for sacrifice, which is kind of eerie. That's kind of horror movie sort of stuff right there. Now, in pre-Hispanic times, it was often said that people would see Siwakwadl wandering around looking for her lost son in an area called Xochimilco. Now, this is interesting because Xochimilco um, is an area that actually is the site of a potential ghost story. So... Now, I've actually been to Xochimilco a number of times, and it, it's kind of a rural part of Mexico City. A lot of flower flower growers live out there, and it's it's surrounded by a bunch of, of canals. This is sort of the area that, that is what's left of the lake that surrounded the Aztec capital. Um, you know, of course, it's diminished over the years with water use, but but this is this is the area of Xochimilco. And it's kind of a cool area because they have these sort of canoe guys, and they, you can float around and, and have little picnics on these big giant boats. And, and it's a really beautiful place, actually. Now, let's take this area, but let's go deeper in um, from this area, a little bit further into the canal system. And let's go back to the 1930s, 1940s. Now, um, it's been said that there was a young girl, and, and I, I don't know her actual name, but um, we'll call her Anna. And there was a young girl, Anna, and one evening she decided she wanted to sneak out and go play by the waterway. 
Now, she and her family grew up in that area. That's where they lived. And so Anna would often hear, you know, at night, don't go by the waterway. La Llorona will get you. And as you might expect, Anna didn't listen. She goes down to the waterways, but never returns home that night. Her parents spend the whole night searching, searching, searching with no luck. It was the next morning that they found her beneath the water, entangled in water lilies. So was Anna a victim of La Llorona? Well, maybe. So the area where this is said to have taken place is actually sort of um, outside, not too far outside of Mexico City. And it's an area where a lot of florists have their, their plantations and they grow flowers. And, and there's these beautiful sort of water park area where you can float around on canoes and, you know, floating mariachi bands. And it's very pretty. And it's not hard to get to this little island where Anna is said to have perished. Um, you basically have to hire a boatman and um, like a gondola, a gondola guy. And it, about an hour and a half winding through the canals will we'll get you there. Now, as you approach this island, you'll notice something. You'll notice something hanging from the trees. And what's hanging from the trees are thousands of dolls. Dolls that are in various states of decay, covered in cobwebs, rotting from the sun, rotting from the elements, just lining the trees in the bushes. Everywhere you see, there are dolls decomposing. Now, this is the Isla de las Munecas, Doll Island. And this island, as it turns out, was once the home of a hermit named Don Julian. Now, Don Julian um, moved to this island in around the 1950s or so. So so roughly about 10 years after little Anna was found dead on the banks of this little, of this little island. Now, the thing is, he moved here and at night he would hear weeping and crying weeping of a child is what he said. And, um, and it was driving him crazy. You know, every night he'd go to bed and, and he'd hear this Whoa, crying and crying. Now, Don Julian, you know, he grew up in this area and, and, and he knew the story about um, the young girl who, who died on the shores of this island. And so, of course, he knew right away that that was probably the ghost of Anna crying and wailing so Don Julian, what he decided to do was to, um, instead of leave the island, um, was to actually try and appease the spirit. And the way he did this was he thought, well, if it's a child, what would a child want? Well, they would want a doll, of course. Now, the first doll he collected was one he called Augustina, and this was always what he considered to be his favorite doll. And Augustina is actually kind of one of those uh, life-size dolls, um, sort of eerily life-size dolls. And, and But then he kept collecting and collecting, and he would collect them, and the, sometimes he'd find dolls floating down the canals, and sometimes he'd go and seek them out. Eventually, though, he got the reputation of being the doll guy. And so the locals uh, would would float down the canals and and often um, they would offer him dolls and he would grow some vegetables on his little little plot of land and and he would exchange vegetables for dolls. So it's said that there are thousands or so of these dolls just all over the place. And, you know, some if you go there, you'll see they're they're newer and some are older. And what's happened over the years, it's become sort of a place of tourism. Um, so what's happened is is visitors will often bring dolls as offering to the island. Um, and so the, the collection grows and grows and grows. 
If, if you're actually interested in sort of um, seeing what this place actually looks like, I know it might be hard to imagine, um, but I actually did a video, well, maybe about 10 years ago in a very much younger looking me. And um, I take um, uh, one of those boats on out there and I take you from the, the dock all the way out to Doll Island and you can kind of get a sense of um, what it actually is like. So actually, if you just go to YouTube and type in Island of Dead Dolls, um, I think you'll find it. You might need to type in my name, but I don't think so. Well, there's another little ghostly twist to the story of Don Julian. I mean, obviously, you know, an island full of dolls and a, and a ghost that lurks around that needs offering is, is kind of ghostly enough. But but there's another little twist that we have here. And that is that in the early 2000s, um, Don Julian passed away. And um, where his body was found was in the exact same spot that the young girl Anna was found. So as I was compiling information for this podcast, I one of the things that um, I was thinking about was that, you know, maybe um, what Don Julian was hearing wasn't necessarily the ghost of the young girl, Anna. What if what he was hearing was actually the spirit La Llorona? What if what he heard was the cry of La Llorona, or if you prefer, Siwakwadl? And so he would give an offering, an offering of a doll, and La Llorona would, would stop weeping because she thinks this doll is one of her children. Hmm, maybe... Well, it's these kinds of ponderings that, you know, that allow folk tales to grow and expand and, and move in different ways. And so I, I might be guilty of, of expanding the folk tale a little bit, but uh, what the hell? So one of the, the cool things about the La Llorona tale is that um, it's something that is actually somewhat contemporary. So, you know, a lot of times with these myths and legends, you know, they're, they're ancient. They're, they're way back when, you know, they're, they're things that people used to tell other people. Well, La Llorona is a little more current. Parents still warn their children using La Llorona as a fearful tactic to keep them away from the water's edge. Now, over the years, I've, I've addressed this topic in my artwork, and, and it's kind of a difficult one to tackle because on one hand, you know, she's this monstrous creature, you know, who drowns children. And, you know, how do you have sympathy for that? On the other hand, she's a character who has a momentary, tragic lapse of judgment and which affects her and affects others and will forever follow her. And that's kind of sad. So I guess part of me hopes that at some point, if La Llorona actually exists, um, that she finds some peace and that she can actually stop crying. Well, that's it for this episode, everyone. Thanks for joining me. And if you want additional resources, go to michaeldemang.com forward slash blog, and you'll see images, artwork, lots of goodies that might relate to what we've discussed. And while you're at michaeldemang.com, you might as well take a little peek at some of the strange, bizarre artwork I create. You can also check out classes I teach around the globe as well as online. So until we meet again, I'll be mything you. <laughs>